Studios of WORQ in Wisconsin. This is the Stand Up for the Truth podcast. Today's issues, overlooked headlines, and biblical observations, equipping the remnant around the globe. Got your sword handy? This is Stand Up for the Truth. Crash Connell, just a couple more months, or days left in the month, rather. Today is Tuesday, January 30. 2024. Fresh new podcast, Mary Danielson is here. Good morning. Good to be here on this Tuesday as January winds down. Hasta la vista de January, although the winter hasn't been too bad. We had the one big blizzard, but so far, it's looking pretty good. Really nice next week. Yeah, next week, mid to upper 40s for For January, February, that's that's really good for us. So that's an election year. (laughs) (laughs) Jamie Hickson is back with us. We're going to talk about how to study the scriptures. Last week, we did a podcast with Pastor Jeff Sowald of Calvary Chapel Madison on how we got the scriptures. Well, today we're going to look at how to study the one book that claims to be God speaking to his creation. I'm really looking forward to diving in on this. My scripture today is Psalm 119, of course. The whole thing. No, just kidding. 18 to, oh, I'm sorry, 89 to 93. Charles Spurgeon says that you should memorize Psalm 119. I don't think I'm quite ready for that, but uh, here we go. Psalm 119, 89 to 93. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You established the earth and it abides. They continue this day according to your ordinances for all are your servants. Unless your law had been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. Oh, Lord, thank you that your word is truth, and that it does indeed endure to all generations, and that you sanctify us by your truth. Lord, we ask that you'd open our eyes and ears uh, to what you have for us every day. Uh, Help us to navigate uh, all the distractions and the difficulties by the power of your Spirit. We lift up JB and, and all he puts his heart and his mind to, uh, to do the work of ministry. Thank you for his gifts, uh, Lord, that, um, that he'd be refreshed and encouraged and, uh, that your word be, would be a light to his path. And we pray for his family, that you would protect them and for good health for everyone, Lord, and that, and for JB, that he would finish well and with joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Like I said, JB Hickson back with us, author, uh, broadcaster, podcaster, pastor. And well-versed in all things related to prophecy and the challenges that we all face to our faith in these times. He's pastor at Plum Creek Chapel in Sedalia, Colorado, and he is president of Not By Works Ministries, notbyworks.org. And we always reference his uh, great work, Spirit of the Antichrist, Volume 1 and 2, Spirit of the False Prophet. Highly recommended resources. Um, they really, really help people get a good grasp of prophecy and why these days are so unique. Welcome back, JB. Hey, great to be back with you. Looking forward to the discussion today. Yeah. Um, what's first of all? What is new at Not by Works? I know we're talking about Bible study today, and I know you have a Bible study resource. So that's basically two different questions, maybe. But what's new at Not by Works, and how can people get a resource on how to study their Bible? 
Yeah, so uh, the newest thing is we're, we're doing our uh, Prophecy Night tonight, mm. and that'll be live-streamed at 6 o'clock Mountain, 7 Central, uh, and uh, that's just a Prophecy Night Q&A where we uh, gather at the church, and people from all over Denver uh, come join us, and we just talk about uh, God's Word and what's going on in the world and try to uh, just uh, watch for the signs of the times. So tune in tonight, if you can, at notbyworks.org. Again, that'll be uh, 7 Central. Uh, and then, yeah, since we're talking about how to study the Bible today, uh, on our website, we have a, on the online store, we have a free section. I love free sections. You know, that's what my <laughs> wife and I do when we go shopping. We go straight to the discount or closeout section. You know, well, we've got a free section, uh, just like salvation, absolutely free, paid for by the blood of Christ. But uh, uh, the free section has a document, has a, tons of documents, dozens of things that you can download for free. Uh, but one of them is a Bible study resources guide, and it goes through the different categories of, you know, concordances and commentaries and word study books and Bible handbooks and Bible encyclopedias and you name it. And it kind of gives you uh, our recommendation for some of the most helpful ones that, that come from a traditional dispensational point of view. So check that out at notbyworks.org. Click on the store button and go to the free resources section. I wanted to ask you real quick on your uh, live stream tonight, are you going to have the link on uh, notbyworks.org? Yep, go to notbyworks.org, click on the live stream button. It'll also be highlighted in the highlight carousel right there in the first position. But, yeah, just click on the live stream button at notbyworks.org. All right, 7 p.m. Central. All right, okay. thanks. Yeah, I love those sessions that you have there. They're so interesting. No two are ever the same, and it's it's a lot of fun. Um, so thanks for letting us know about those resources because we're actually going to talk about a lot of those things today, flesh those out, what they are. Um, JB, there's a bestseller out there that contains all we need to know about who God is and how we can and need to live in a way that, that pleases Him and how to live forever with Him. Now, who wouldn't want to get their hands on such a book and read it from cover to cover and treasure it? And yet, I mean, it's the all-time bestseller. It says, uh, I looked it up, an estimated 7 billion sold. That's nearly one for every human on earth. But the world and the church are still a mess. So JB, help us out with that. Why is this true when this book exists? Well, you know, the Bible is the only book on the planet that when you read it, it's doing something to mm. you. You know, if anybody reads my books, they're doing something to it. Uh, and they may be helpful, they may be accurate, uh, but the Bible is 100% accurate, and it's living and active, and it is actually doing something to you, changing lives. And so uh, the reason that uh, we see the world in such a state is that people aren't reading the Word of God uh, the way they should. Most Bibles are filled with dust, and, uh, you know, we've got... Uh, especially in the Christian world, that, that really explains a lot about the apostasy in the Church, is that our homes have Bibles. Uh, many of them have multiple copies of the Bible. And these days you've got the Bible on your mobile device. So literally, unlike a- any other time in history, we've got the entire Bible with us wherever we go, if you're carrying a smartphone or a tablet. And yet uh, people aren't reading it. And so it's not... It doesn't change lives by osmosis. You've got to read the Word of God to, mm-hmm. to have it impact and convict and change your life. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. There there are quite a few memes that pop up from time to time on social media about reading the Bible. One of my favorites is, men do not reject the Bible because it contradicts itself, but because it contradicts them. And they they hide behind this notion that, well, mankind wrote the Bible. No, because it talks about the worst things about mankind. and. Mankind is far too prideful to say the things about themselves that the Bible says about them. So that's always my answer for, well, I think mankind wrote the Bible. 
But knowing how to study the Bible is important because it really is one of the most important tasks a believer has in this life. We don't just read it, but we're supposed to study it and handle it correctly. And I mentioned Psalm 119 earlier about meditating on just the excellencies of his word. And throughout Psalm 119, what I love about it is it it talks about God's revelation and it defines it as the word, testimonies, precepts, commandments, judgments, works, law, and statutes. And I'm probably missing some. Um, but there is so much to that. Um, I'm so grateful for Psalm 119 because of that. And then one other verse, JB, I want to ask you about. And it's Hebrews 4, 12 to 13. And it says, For the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And 13, there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Very, very sobering. God already knows us, and we need to know him. What, what does that mean exactly, J.B.? A piercing to do the vision of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow. That, that's, uh, that's fairly intense. Yeah, it really is, and that's what we mean when we talk about how the Bible is a living a breathing book that does something to you. So first thing we need to understand is that in the Bible there is there are two words of God. There's the living incarnate word, Jesus Christ himself, who uh, as part of the triune God created the universe. Uh, you know, we can think of Hebrews 1 and John 1. Uh, but uh, there's also the living written word, and that's the Bible, the, the pages of Scripture. And when, the, when Hebrews talks about how it's uh, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. What it means is that the Bible alone has the ability to pierce inside the heart of man and separate uh, that within us which longs for the flesh from that which longs for the spirit, mm. even though sometimes those two tendencies might be so closely intertwined as to be almost uh, unrecognizable. It's the Word of God that can sort that out. And so that's the convicting power of the Spirit using the Word of God, uh, showing us a right from wrong, showing us God's way from, from man's way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I came from a denomination that said, don't read the Bible, you won't understand it. Well, they had half of that right, because I would not have understood it. But then they said, don't read the Bible. And so I, at, at some point I just decided to drop the traditions and and just to look at the Creator himself. And that was just a monumental, life-changing moment for me. Uh, and we need to... Um, study and handle it correctly. Uh, Timothy calls uh, us workmen. And so to that end, because we're workmen and Bible study really is work, I want to talk about some definitions. People might say, well, what do we need to know these definitions for? I think we need to in order to be uh, rightly dividing the word. And the first one I want to ask you, JB, is hermeneutics. All these $10,000 words here. What is hermeneutics? Yeah, hermeneutics is a, a technical term. You'll find it in uh, advanced higher education, Bible colleges, seminaries. It just means the, the science of studying the Bible. So it's a methodology. And so it, we might say that you know a, a charismatic has a different hermeneutic mm. than a dispensationalist, let's say. Uh, so how you approach the Scriptures, what are some rules uh, and, and regulatory principles for handling the Word of God. You mentioned earlier Second uh, Timothy 2, Fifteen, you know, to correctly handle the Word of God. Um, the Old King James says, "Rightly dividing." Mm. Uh, that word is an interesting word in the New Testament. It's the only time it's used in the New Testament. It's the Greek word "orthotomeo," uh, means to cut straight, and uh, it's it's where we get the word "orthodontia." from in English, and you, know, you certainly would not want an orthodontist that didn't know how to make things straight. That's the whole yeah. point of orthodontia, is to keep your teeth straight. 
Well, the same thing is true with the Word of God. We want to cut a straight line from what the text says to what it means without being led astray on various uh, you know, rabbit trails and presuppositional thoughts and inaccurate cross-referencing. And I know we're going to get to some of that as we go through this today, but uh, we need to remember that you know, the Bible, uh, it's, it's living and active, but if you mishandle it, it's almost worse than not reading it at all, because it has led people astray into some pretty egregious errors that are not honoring to God and that are not uh, not consistent with the teaching of Scripture. Okay. Would you say hermeneutics is what it means and also what it cannot mean? Because as we study, you know, we search the Scriptures, the Scriptures are searching us at the same time. But also hermeneutics, um, I guess there are processes there, right? You you would have to observe, you would have to interpret it, you'd have to apply um but is but is and taking it literally is that also included in hermeneutics because there have to be some laws of hermeneutics and I presume a literal interpretation would be one of them. Yeah, there are multiple in the in the realm of theology in the formal you know academic arena. There are different types of hermeneutics. Only one is accurate, we believe, and that's called the literal, grammatical, historical okay. approach. A literal meaning the words of of the page are taken in their normal, plain sense. A grammatical meaning that you take into account the syntax and grammar of the original language. Historical meaning that that words have meaning in their original context, and so you need to look at the historical uh, culture and context. So literal, grammatical, historical, or LGH. But there are a lot of others that are accepted by other uh, you know different groups that that we believe are not accurate, like allegorical hermeneutics or redemptive movement hermeneutics and, and things like that, where the Bible. It, you know, it, it loses sight of original meaning, and it, it, it you know basically makes the reader or the interpreter the final arbiter on what is said, rather than the words on the page. Mm. Um, context. I know context is king. They say, what actually, if you were to define context, um, because you can't, you cannot interpret without a con- without context. Uh, what would be your definition of context? Well. Uh, First of all, meaning always is determined by context. Most people think meaning is determined by a dictionary. But I can Mm. prove that very simply in English with one example. If I were to ask you, Mary, what does the word trunk mean, Uh, you could grab your dictionary, but that's not really going to help you because the dictionary is going to say, well, it's part of an elephant or it's part of a tree or it's part of a car or maybe it's a big suitcase, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, So, but if I said... That elephant has a long trunk. Well, now you know what I mean because of the context. So, um, you know, a dictionary, both in English and in Greek or Hebrew, simply gives us a range of possible meanings based on the way the word has been used historically. But meaning, (coughs) excuse me, has to come from context. So context involves the surrounding sentences. You know, there's a a principle in hermeneutics called the concentric circles of context. And... Mm. You know, the idea here is the smaller the passage being studied, the greater the chance of error. So if you just pull one verse out of context and try to extrapolate from that the broader meaning without looking at what comes before, what comes afterwards, who it was written to, who wrote it, what was the setting, what was the purpose, what was the theme, what was the date, mm-hmm. uh, then those types of things uh, can really lead to error. So you start with you know, a word or a sentence, you expand out to the paragraph, then to the entire book, and then to the author's other writings, and then to the entire testament, if you're looking in the New Testament or Old Testament. And ultimately, 
you know, all interpretation has to be consistent with what the Bible says from cover to cover. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, my favorite uh, definition, and which you have already defined, actually, is a word, phrase, or sentence surrounding a particular word, phrase, or sentence. And there's your concentric okay. circles and, uh, you know, that which goes with the text. So the opposite is true. If you take a verse or a phrase or a word out of context, then you're going to come away with a meaning other than what the author originally intended. And that's where the mischief results. People do it all the time. But, J.B., I'm getting the impression here that it really is um, a, a great undertaking to study God's Word, but it requires a commitment. It requires time. It's a lot of work. Would you say that's true? Yeah, for sure. And, you know, there's an old saying in hermeneutics, if you take text out of context, all you're left with is a con. And so, you know, that's just just a good reminder of how critical context is in the overall enterprise of of studying the Scripture. But you're right, it is is, uh, hard work, and most believers today are are looking to be spoon-fed. They're Mm -hmm. looking for that chicken soup for the soul approach to studying the Bible, and uh, they they just want someone else... uh, you know, to, to tell them what it means. I, I get emails all the time, you probably do too, Mary, uh, from people saying, you know, what do you think about this guy? What do you think about this guy? Or what do you think about this gal? Or give me a good, you know, uh, recommendation for a ladies' Bible study. Or my favorite is, watch this three-hour video and give me your thoughts, you know, and they send me a link. And, uh, and I just, sometimes it's hard not to get frustrated and say, look, you know, we want you to be able to handle the Word of God yourself. I'm not perfect. I'm not, I don't want people to in, hold a certain viewpoint because J.B. said so, first of all, I could be wrong, and second of all, even if I'm right, if they're basing their viewpoint on, on me, all it's going to take is someone else to come along later that's more articulate or funnier or makes a better argument, communicates the truth in a better way or what they think is the truth, mm-hmm. and then the person's going to change their view. So I want people mm-hmm. to be able to handle the Word of God for themselves and, uh, you know, we went through an entire period of history, world history, called the Middle Ages, where uh, Christians were told not to read the Bible, yeah. just trust the Church. Only the priest can really accurately interpret the Bible. And consequently, it led to indulgences and works-based teaching and works-based salvation and just all kinds of atrocities done under the name of the Catholic Church. So we want people to read the Word of God, but it's not easy. You've got to know how to do it. Um, and, uh, you know, the devil has convinced a whole generation of Christians that the Bible is some kind of a mystical, uh, weird book, that it takes special spiritual insight to be able to figure it out. It's really not, Mary. It's a mm-hmm. book written with verbs and nouns and predicates, and you just read it like you would any other book. And, and you know, we don't have any trouble reading uh, a Tom Clancy novel. Uh, you know, I don't think people have trouble reading my books because it's just the way books are. They, they work. It starts with a premise. It makes an argument. It throws in some illustrations and some uh, documented proof, and then it makes a conclusion. And so the Bible tells a story similarly. The only difference is the words you know, on the pages of Scripture are 100% infallible, and that should you know, motivate us even more to pick it up and read yeah, it. Yeah. I think, J.B., you've been looking at my emails because that is exactly what my emails sound like. <laughs> look, yeah. at a, look at a video and tell me what you think or who, who is this author. Um, and it's impossible to keep up or, or help us find a church in Tennessee or what have you. Well, the best thing is you have the Internet now, so you go, on, you go online, you watch the archives, you watch the services, you watch the worship, and pray. I think people have just left off that one thing where God will direct them. 
you know, lean not on your own understanding, but God will direct you. But but don't come to me. <laughs> Go to him because he's the one who knows what's best for you. So, yes, uh, great answer. Thank you so much for that. Um, I want to move on to exegesis versus eisegesis. And I'm, pre- I'm presuming here one is good and one is not so good. What are those? What's the meaning of those two terms, JB? Yeah, again, you're, you're dealing with technical <laughs> terms. Uh, they both come from Greek. Uh, exegesis means to get out of the text what what it says, and usually when you're talking about a hermeneutics and how to study the Bible and Bible study method, exegesis has reference to the original languages. So if you're going to exegete the text, it means you're going to take a look at the Hebrew or the Greek, you're going to do some word studies, you're going to kind of understand uh, how the words were used in their original language and what's the, the uh, tense, voice, and mood. That's exegesis. Eisegesis is what you don't want to do, and that is bringing your uh, interpretation to the text. And there are all kinds of uh, exegetical fallacies, as D.A. Carson would call them, uh, where we, we, we you know, don't handle the word correctly or we make mistakes when comparing words. You know, one example is assuming uh, a meaning of a word that has meaning today uh, you know, transporting that back in time to what it meant back then. Like, for example, in Acts chapter 1-8, uh, we, we read that the Holy Spirit will give us power, we'll have power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, Jesus, kind of his great commission there before the ascension. And we know that the Greek word power is dunamis, and later on in English, dunamis is where we get the English word dynamite. Well, that was, you know, 1,500 years later, and so a lot of times you'll hear preachers say, this word power in X18 is, is dynamite. It's got this explosive, very powerful, you know, thing, and it's like a bomb that explodes. Well, that's an exegetical fallacy, because at the time the word dunamis was, was used in the first century, it had no correlation to dynamite. Dynamite wasn't even uh, in existence. So, uh, you know, exegesis, what does the text say based on the original language? Eisegesis, let me make the text say what I sure. want it to say. Uh, to make my point. Okay, that makes perfect sense. And I think of uh, I think of topical studies, and that's not to say there's never a place for a topical study, but you can when you do topical studies uh, primarily, you end up using verses as a prop for what it is that you want to talk about it, and you don't want to overdo that. And a lot of churches today talk uh, about the Bible, but they don't teach the Bible. So I think that's kind of where the churches have gotten away from exegesis, and they're just reading into it what they wanted to say, and and. And it's just really, um, it is chicken soup for the soul, or it is a mile wide and an inch deep. And, and uh, congregations are getting ripped off when they're not getting um, a pastor, teacher who rightly divides the word. And there's a place, of course, expository teaching and preaching. But then again, you can't rely on the pastor always to tell you what the Bible says either. You don't want to be spoon-fed your whole life. Even if a pastor says, be a Berean, you know, do your own studies, I don't know if Christians do that. Um, and Go ahead. I'd like to talk for just a second about yeah. the difference between topical and verse-by-verse. <laughs> yes. So a lot of Christians who have been fortunate to grow up in a, a solid Bible-teaching uh, church where the pastor does preach the whole counsel of God have this mistaken notion, nevertheless, that um, expository teaching is equivalent to verse-by-verse teaching. Mm. And that is simply not the case. Mm. Expository teaching has to do with simply explaining the text in its proper context, what we've been talking about uh, this morning, this idea of handling the Word of God correctly, 
doing proper exegesis, doing word studies, looking at the context. That's exposition. And you ought to and should do exposition whether you're preaching on a topic theologically. Like I could preach a series on eternal security, and I should do so expositorily. When I'm dealing with the scripture, I should explain it in its context properly. So verse by verse is simply a methodology or an approach, a style of teaching. I think it's a good one. It it forces the pastor and the church to deal with each book of the Bible. And in my ministry, I've always taught through a book of the Bible on Sunday mornings. Uh, Right now we're in 1 Thessalonians. We were most recently in Nehemiah. Before that, we've done Hebrews and Acts and Psalms. And so uh, I think it's a good approach. But whatever approach you choose, whether you're going to preach through a book of the Bible or preach through an important topic like Bible prophecy, for example, exposition has to do with how you do that, and you want to make sure you do it right. Hmm. Yes, that's very interesting. And I think of some of the stickier subjects like spiritual gifts, um, like you said, once save, always save, that sort of thing. Um, it's easy to teach those things from an, a certain background as well, right? Uh, because you'll get uh, different churches have different views of spiritual gifts. They have different views of, of eternal security. So tell us again, how do you avoid that? Ooh, that's a tough one, JB. How do you avoid a denominational slant or a spin on those, especially those particular topics that Christians have so many questions about? Well, that's a great question. And, uh, you know, one of the charts that we have in our Not By Works uh, chart book, uh, which is available at our online store, is a, a kind of a continuum of how misinterpreting Scripture happens. Mm. And misinterpreting Scripture almost always comes into play at the cross-reference level. Now, we haven't talked about cross-referencing. We'll get to that in mm-hmm. a second. But essentially, when you bring your presupposition to the text, and you're looking to have the text prove what you already have come to conclude, then you're going to start linking up verses that sound like what you need them to mm-hmm. sound like, uh, like I made a, a point in when I wrote a journal article critiquing um, uh, the, the Purpose Driven uh, Life um, article. I forget the guy's name, but you you know who I'm talking about mm-hmm. out in California, Rick yeah, Warren. Rick Warren. Mm-hmm. And you know he he talks a lot about how how many scripture references he uses, and indeed, almost after every sentence, there's a parenthesis with a bunch of references. Mm-hmm. But if you actually take the time to look up those references, you find most of the time. The references don't have anything to do with the point that he was making. And Christians are kind of lazy sometimes. We read a book and we see a bunch of verses after the sentence and we go, oh, this must really be what the Bible says. This guy's really smart. It must be true. How often do we take the time to actually look those cross-references up? And if we did, we'd find out, you know what, I think this author might be making a case here that is is not really what these verses say. Mm -hmm. So I think misinterpreting Scripture... Uh, often happens because we we want the text to say what we've really already concluded. Yeah, yeah, and there are some sticky subjects. So, and of course, we would encourage people to study these things for themselves. Uh, like I said, spiritual gifts and prophecy and and uh, eternal security. All those things are things that people talk about. Um, so let's move on a little bit here. Um, we've already determined that context rules, and so that would be the whole council and letting the Bible interpret itself. Cross-references, JB, we kind of touched on it a little bit. What is um, what is the advantage of cross-references, and how do you go about uh, knowing? What is there a resource you can use to find all those cross-references? Well, for sure there is. A, uh, Treasury of Scripture Knowledge is one of the mm, best. Okay. Um, but these days, with digital technology, there's no excuse not to look up cross-references. Mm-hmm. So what are they? Well, 
if you remember your old you know print Bibles like we many of us still use, in the center column, usually there's a, a, a bunch of footnotes, what we might call footnotes. Mm-hmm. And as you're reading, well, there's a footnote or letter that comes up, and then you you go look for that letter, that note in the center column, and it's going to have a bunch of corresponding references. And so, you know, it's when you when you're reading the Bible and there's someplace else in the Bible that that topic is addressed, or some other verse in the Bible that relates to what you're talking about, you see it particularly in the New Testament when it quotes the Old Testament. It'll have a little footnote, and it'll say, here's where this verse is found in the Old Testament. So those are called cross-references. The problem is, those center column notes um, and cross-references are not inspired. In other words, it was just some student of the Bible, like you or me, doing their best to, to bring into the discussion other verses that come to mind when they read that verse. So if you read, you know, the Benny Hinn Study Bible, I guarantee you his cross-references are going to be quite different than, yes. say, the Ryrie Study Bible from right. a dispensational mm-hmm. point of view. So they can be helpful, but you also need to recognize that even cross-references, sometimes I look at a cross-reference and I go, mm, I don't think that verse applies here. Uh, so this is where you know, the Holy Spirit comes into play, helping us welcome and embrace the Scriptures and you know, if you've ever been reading the Scriptures, Mary, and and as you're having your devotion, you're reading one passage, but all of a sudden another passage comes to mind, mm-hmm. and then that has you chasing another passage, and then you remember a different passage. That's cross-referencing, and that's where the Holy Spirit kind of leads us and prompts yes. us based on our knowledge of the Word that yes. we've hidden in our hearts. Um, and, you know, we, we want to do that constructively and organically, JB, I'm going to ask you to hold that thought because cross references are right. I'm sorry to interrupt you. I I just love what you're saying here, but we need to take a break, and we're going to be back in two minutes uh, with more. This is Mary Danielson. You're listening to Stand Up for the Truth for January 30th with JB Hickson. We're talking about the Bible and how to study it, and I have so many more questions for him in the second half, and we'll talk some more about cross references and how they support, illuminate, and amplify what it is we're studying. So stay with me. Be back in two minutes. Your prayers and ongoing financial support keep our Truth at Any Cost mission strong. StandUpForTheTruth.com Welcome back to Stand Up For The Truth. For this Tuesday, we're speaking to Pastor J.B. Hickson, NotByWorks.org, and we're talking about how to study the Bible, and we've covered quite a bit of ground already. Uh, We were talking about cross-references and how they support and amplify uh, what we're studying. Um, J.B., I want to ask you about commentaries, because something I noticed uh, several years ago is that an awful lot of Bibles, uh, they used to just be Scripture from from one end to the other, and all of a sudden, half the page is commentary, and and we don't always know who the commentator is or what the spin is. Um, So what about commentaries? Uh, I think too much commentary sort of short-circuits uh, the studying process, it can become pre-digested bits of scripture, you know, what's what the Lord showed someone else. So what is your take on the Bibles that are seems to be half commentary these days, and are commentaries, what is the place of them in your studies? Yeah, well, you, you quoted Spurgeon at the top of the show, and I think Spurgeon famously said, never forget, the Bible will shed a lot of light on commentaries. And, <laughs> you know, we tend to think of it the other way around. Yeah. Um, Christians are quick to pull for a commentary, uh, because they don't know how to correctly handle the Word of God. Uh, so we always want to start with the Bible. Let the text speak for itself. Uh, usually, uh, with maybe a good word study book, 
uh, maybe a digital technology where you can hover your finger over the word on your mm-hmm. phone in the Bible and it'll pop up with the original Greek or Hebrew. Um, that type of software is available. It's free. Um, Logos Bible software, for example, the app is free. Uh, you know, with that kind of technology, you can usually get pretty far down the road on your own. Now, obviously, you know, some passages of Scripture are a little bit harder to understand, and it takes some diligence. And, you know, even Peter talked about how Paul was hard to understand at times. Mm-hmm. So that's where commentaries can be helpful. Uh, when you get stumped, you might want to pull for a commentary and, and see what other scholars have said about this passage to, to make sure you're not too far afield of, right. of orthodoxy. But, you know, not all commentaries are created equal, as you said. So you want to make sure you pull for a good uh, a commentary that's coming from a dispensational, literal, grammatical, historical perspective, uh, because otherwise it's going to add, you know, more problems than it does solutions. Uh, a study Bible is similar to a commentary, only it's usually smaller, and what it does, as you said, is it it's a Bible, but each verse... Uh, has a little commentary at the bottom of the page or kind of helping you explain it. So those can be helpful, too. They're like a mini-commentary, not as exhaustive and detailed as a commentary, and that not every verse has a comment on it, but they can be helpful, too. But again, same thing. You want to stick with uh, the Ryrie Study Bible or uh, my favorite, by the way. Uh, in fact, I knew the general editor and knew most of the contributing editors for the Old and New Testament, most of whom are with the Lord now, uh, uh, is, is now called the New King James Study Bible. It used to be called the Nelson Study Bible, okay. uh, but it's called the New King James Study Bible. Outstanding dispensational scholarship from a traditional dispensational point of view. I think it's the best study Bible on the market. But again, I'm not going to agree, nor will you, with every single comment made by every single commentator yeah. in yeah. that Bible. But it's it can be helpful to kind of help uh, answer some tough questions and when you get stumped or if you just need a quick answer. Uh, but just remember that the notes are not inspired, nor are commentators. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And dispensationalism really does change a lot of things when it comes to interpreting the scriptures. That's one of the major ways that, um, because of eschatology, things can completely get off track. Tell us, how would you say how dispensationalism really is one of the ways that we need to um, interpret the Bible through that lens of dispensationalism? What's so important about that? Well, fundamentally, uh, dispensationalism is a hermeneutic. It is okay. a methodology of studying the Bible. Uh, Charles Ryrie makes that clear in his uh, famous book called Dispensationalism, originally called Dispensationalism Today, but it's been retitled. But it's basically a literal grammatical hermeneutic. And the, the tenets, the uh, conclusions of dispensational theology all flow from a literal grammatical historical hermeneutic. Mm-hmm. So the average person when you when you if they even have heard the term dispensationalism they think oh charts and diagrams and uh, ages of history mm-hmm. and, but that's not dispensationalism that is some of the conclusions of dispensational teaching but dispensationalism fundamentally is a hermeneutic how you study the bible and it's contrasted with replacement theology uh, or covenant theology it's called uh, which uses allegorical hermeneutics. In other words, uh, the only way you can conclude that the church is the new Israel and that there is no future for national Israel in God's plan of the ages, the only way you can conclude that is by allegorizing the Scripture. The text on the page absolutely says the exact opposite if you let the words 
speak for themselves. You read the Old Testament, and Israel is clearly promised a kingdom with geographic boundaries spelled out in black and white, a Mm -hmm. temple with dimensions and architectural design spelled out in nine chapters of Ezekiel, um, the throne, uh, you know, all kinds of specific details about Christ coming back, sitting on the throne, and ruling the world with a rod of iron. But if you let the New Testament come along and fundamentally allegorize those passages, uh, then all of a sudden you've got Christ is reigning on our hearts today, the kingdom is now, we're living in the kingdom, and you know, so forth and so on. They do that with Revelation, the book of Revelation, too. Every one of the sections of Revelation, they say, is just an allegorical restatement of the present church age. So the seals are the church age, the trumpets are the church age, the bowls are the church mm-hmm. age, the thousand years is the church age, which is really bizarre when you think about it, because Revelation tells us quite clearly Satan is bound up during the thousand years. If Satan is bound up today, boy, I'd hate to see what it was like <laughs> when he wasn't bound. So, I mean, yep. allegorical interpretation essentially allows you to take what the text says and assign virtually any meaning to it, even though the text oh. doesn't say that. Wow. So that's that's why dispensationalism is so important. And it is a biblical term, by the way. We get it directly from Ephesians 3. It's the word oikonomos. It's dispensation is the way it's translated in the New King James. And it just means God's uh, stewardship, God's economy. And right now, we're in the economy of the church age. Uh, but as Romans 9 through 11 makes clear, and Revelation makes clear, God is not through with, with Israel. Uh, there's mm-hmm. a future for Israel. And one day, God's focus is going to shift back to the completion of his 490-year plan uh, for Israel. And, and we have a chart, by the way, in the free section of our online store on Daniel's 490-year plan. I'd love for folks to download that and take a look at it. Great. Well, I love your concise definition of dispensationalism and allegorizing as a hermeneutic. That really helped a lot to help me understand exactly what the difference is and how it really does affect, especially with what's going on in Israel right now. Um, it's coming, kind of coming to the forefront a little bit of what people believe about these things. So that was very helpful. So JB, I want to, I want to move on to the subject of worldliness because, um, you know, we're called to apply the Bible to life, uh, to our lives and not just be hearers, but doers, doers as well. And so, um, I guess my question is, if a person really has not undertaken a systematic study of the scriptures, where should the average person start? It might depend on where you're at with the Lord and, and the timeline of how long you've been in the Lord. But uh, before we move on, just find out or tell us what uh, you would suggest to be uh, a great place to start for anyone who wants to uh, undertake a deep study of the scriptures. Uh, I think there's a few suggestions, but, you know, obviously it goes without saying, start somewhere. You know, don't be (laughs) paralyzed by indecision. Uh, Pick up the Bible, open it, and start reading. But if you want suggestions, I would say the Gospel of John is a great place to start. It it solidifies the fact that our salvation is by faith alone. It's often called the Gospel of Belief. The simplest statement of all the Gospel is found in John 6.47, Verily, verily, I say unto you, whoever believes in me has everlasting life, Jesus said. More than 160 times, the New Testament conditions eternal life upon faith alone. And one of the areas where bad hermeneutics, bad Bible study methods, has had the greatest impact is on clouding up and confusing the gospel. So that today, people think they get saved because they commit, surrender, promise, pledge, forsake, give, 
walk an aisle, sign a card, make some kind of a bilateral right. contract with the Lord, like it's some kind of negotiation. And the Bible is quite clear, if you read it, it's over and over and over again, believe, believe, believe. And believe just means to be confident or assured in something. And when you're confident that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died and rose again to pay your personal penalty for sin, you're saved. Who are you trusting in to give you the gift of eternal life? Who are you trusting in to forgive your sin and pay your sin penalty on your behalf? It's got to be Jesus. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So reading the Gospel of John will, you know, certainly if you're an unbeliever, it's a great place to start because it's just going to show you that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and you need to believe in Him for eternal life. But if you're a believer, it's also going to reassure you uh, that you know, He's with you, that He's never going to forsake you. John ten twenty eight, I give you eternal life and you will never perish. And it's it's a promise. So I would I would consider that. Or, you know, Proverbs has a lot of great wisdom. I read a proverb a day. Uh, corresponding to what day of the month it is. There are 31 chapters in Proverbs, so you can read a chapter of Proverbs, like today's the 30th, so you can read Proverbs chapter 30. Um, that's a great practical book. Um, I mean, you know, uh, you really can't go wrong, um, and it's also a good idea to read the Bible chronologically to kind of understand God's plan of the ages. Uh, if you don't uh, understand the first 11 chapters of Genesis, you're, you're going to have trouble connecting the dots the rest of the way. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, yeah, those are some of my thoughts. Okay, great. And I, I know that um, we know that the Scripture is not taught, uh, the full counsel is not taught in an awful lot of churches today. And if it's not taught, then people can't really apply it. And hopefully they'll study at home and understand they need to apply it. Um, but if they're not applying it to their lives, that that opens up a whole new door of, of what we call, or what I would say, uh, one of the consequences is a sense of worldliness, not not uh, doing the do's, and also um, finding ourselves with the wrong um, priorities in this life. And I want to talk about worldliness a little bit here, JB, because you had a podcast recently that was just so, so good. And when I think of worldliness, I think, uh, can Christians dance? Well, some can and some can't. Uh, is, it, is it what we do, JB, because... Um, uh, a list of things that we do, those things are not the problem, uh, or are they the problem? What would you, how would you define worldliness, especially in light of uh, that people are not studying the scriptures and, and the problems that happen when you are just uh, neglecting God's word and having other priorities in life? Yeah, so that was a great, great uh, podcast. I really encourage people to go back and listen to it. It was from... Um, Let's see, last Friday, I believe it was, yeah, Brad Maston, Christians mm-hmm. and the Things of the World, and we defined worldliness. So first of all, uh, sadly, many people back in the you know middle of the 20th century when the fundamentalist modernist controversy was taking root and people were attacking the inerrancy of Scripture, um, people began to, I think, unfortunately define worldliness based on behavior. Mm-hmm. So you were worldly if you went to... Uh, the movies, or if you, you know, if you wore pants, if you were a woman, or if you, uh, you know, went, if you went bowling, you know, those <laughs> type things. If you went dancing, I think you mentioned. Um, that's kind of getting the cart before the horse. Those are behaviors that may or may not be worldly, depending on the attitude of the heart and, and the context. Worldliness is fundamentally an attitude of the heart, and First John really uh, speaks directly to that issue in in chapter 2, and it says, do not love the world or the things in the world. 
If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, that doesn't mean he's not a believer. John is very clearly speaking here to believers. He calls them brothers. But you cannot be loving the world and claim to be exemplifying the love of God at the same time. Mm. When you're loving the world, it's not the new nature that's being manifested in you. You're catering to that old nature, that fleshly nature. The born of God part of us never produces worldly thoughts and worldly lusts. And he goes on to define worldliness as the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And so, you know, that's, that's fundamentally what worldliness is. How does that develop? Well, it develops because, you know, you get garbage in, you get garbage out. If you're filling your mind and your heart with worldly things instead of with the living and active Word of God, then, of course, uh, you're going to produce worldly behavior that's rooted in that worldly thought. And that's why Psalm 119, as you quoted earlier, you quoted from later in the chapter, or maybe, uh, you know, it was earlier in the chapter, but uh, Psalm 119, uh, 111 says, Thy word have I hid in my heart, why? That I might not sin against thee. So the more we fill our hearts up with the word of God, the more the Spirit of God is going to have ammunition to call upon, to use when we're facing tough decisions in this world that we live in, this fallen world, where the whole world is under the sway of the wicked one, John mm-hmm. tells us. Uh, as we navigate this worldly life, we've got to have spiritual weapons to kind of in our arsenal to call upon, so that when faced with a temptation or a, a tough choice or a, a crisis or a heartache or a trial, the Word of God that we have hidden in our heart will come to mind and it will give us peace and help us trust the Lord and those types of things. So worldliness is really an attitude of the heart. And one other thing I'd say about Bible study, and and I was going to get there, and this is the perfect time to talk about it, never forget the goal of Bible study is not to get smarter or to figure it out or to win Bible trivia games or to be able to say, I know all about the Bible. The fundamental goal of Bible study is to change your life. Mm-hmm. And there are the, the world is filled with biblically brilliant but morally bankrupt mm. people because they don't move on to that important final step of studying the Bible, which is application. Yeah. What, is, what do I do with this information? How does this change my life? James reminds us that uh, it's not just reading and hearing the Word of God that's going to bring blessing. It's doing the Word of God mm-hmm. that brings blessing. Mm-hmm. So we don't want a bunch of biblically brilliant people who can name all the twelve uh, king, you know, sons of, of of Israel, or all the judges and the kings, and what you know time frame they reigned in. That's great, uh, and I'm impressed by that. But that's not going to change your life unless you live out what the Word of God says, and yeah. uh, you know, become doers of the Word and not hearers only. Yes, absolutely, and getting to know the Savior better because the volume of the book is written of Him. Uh, the Bible is about someone. And so, yes, uh, getting to know our Savior better. Um, um, I love this definition of worldliness. Um, the condition of being concerned with worldly affairs to the neglect of spiritual things. So it's sort of a two-sided, um, two-sided thing there. And I think, uh, very subtly, I think this really happens in the church a lot more than it ever did before because of news and media. Um, believers, believers now think that government and changing the way things work back to the way when they seem to work, um, can take up a lot of our waking moments. I think it's good for believers to do a little, uh, check. Um, maybe think about how much time they're spending on that or where their faith actually is. 
uh, to the neglect of spiritual things. And so it's okay. It's okay to, to be salt and light and all those other things. But JB, how, how can we know if we are, um, a little more involved in those temporal things? Because the culture is unredeemable and we need to know that going in. Otherwise, everything is kind of a waste of time. But JB, at what point should we be aware that maybe we are neglecting spiritual things over something as simple as what's going on in the news? Well, it's it's hard. I mean, it's, yeah. this whole world is, is yeah. under the sway of the wicked one. It's all around us. It's harder now than it's ever been. Uh, Paul tells us that deception is going to get worse and worse, Second Timothy 3.13. Um, uh, a friend of mine that I, I've known for over 20 years now, we've done many conferences together. We've uh, worked together. I've had him in my churches. He's, a, I think, the number one, my favorite Christian uh, uh, you know, scientist uh, uh, who speaks about uh, the age of the earth. You've had him on your show, Russ Miller. Oh, yeah. Um, he came up with a phrase uh, that I've borrowed. In fact, I'm going to be using this phrase as a title for an upcoming message at a conference uh, later this year. He calls it the Christian Industrial Complex. <laughs> and I think that's a great description. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've written about the military-industrial complex and those types of things. Well, the church today has become so saturated with worldly thought and worldly principles that it's really just become another branch of the industrial worldly complex. So the Christian industrial oh. complex refers to this very uh, problem that you're talking about, that the church has become indistinguishable from the world. So many churches uh, take their cue from society because uh, they want to be liked and popular and marketed, and you know how can we fill up our pews and fill up our offering plates, and rather than preaching the Word of God. So one way to know whether your church is, you know, adopting worldly principles is, do people ever get offended by what you say? You know, Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace, but a mm. sword. I mean, the gospel fundamentally confronts man in his sin and, uh, you know, provides the solution. Preaching the good news necessarily requires understanding the bad news. And if you never talk about sin, if you never confront people in their thoughts and attitudes and behaviors, uh, then uh, you may fill up your church, but you're simply aiding and abetting uh, Satan mm-hmm. in this worldly system. That's the way I see it. Wow. I think of one particular verse um, that tells me what it's like to be worldly in the last days is when Peter talks about scoffers will come walking after their own lusts. They're, they're scoffing about Christ's return because they're worldly. Is that what that's saying? Yeah, they're, they're, uh, they're scoffing, saying, look, you've been talking about the return of Christ all these years. It's never happened. We don't think it's going to happen. So you're, you're foolish to be expecting Christ to come back. And, and fundamentally, that is a worldly attitude. It's, it's focusing all about the earth and earthly mm-hmm. matters. It's exactly what Paul said in Colossians 3. Uh, in Colossians uh, 3, verse 1, Paul said, Since you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is. See the, see the focus? See the perception? Yeah, right. See the, the, you know, where your attention is focused? Where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on earth. <clears throat> and listen to how he closes this out. <clears throat> For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now listen, when Christ, who is our life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Mm -hmm. So there is an an expectancy that motivates us, that helps us get out of bed every morning, that 
keeps us looking up, being watchful, and that what Peter was talking about is this worldly lust is so obsessed with everything on on earth that you forget there's a bigger picture at play here. And sadly, many Christians fall prey to that. You know, mm-hmm. the, our life on earth is just a speck, mm-hmm. barely even noticeable on the timeline of eternity, mm-hmm. and yet we become so concerned with what happens you know, between the cradle and the grave. And, and Paul is saying, look, this is not our home. This is not our citizenship. Our citizenship is in heaven. Keep your eyes focused on the author and finisher of our faith. Yes, absolutely. And and he who has this hope purifies himself. Uh, so there's a promise there that, that um, when we shed this worldliness or this worldly thinking, that it will have a purifying effect on our lives and our hearts and our minds. What an incredible promise that is. J.B., we only have a couple minutes left. Anything else we left out or anything you want to still discuss about any of these things? Well, just to reiterate what you just said is that when uh, when we set our mind on things above, the things of earth will grow strangely dim. The things that bother us now and give us anxiety and concern and fear, those things will fade away. So it really is important to keep that, uh, you know, uh, heavenly mindset. Mm-hmm. So just a reminder that uh, we've got Prophecy Night tonight. You can live stream that at notbyworks.org. That's at 7 o'clock Central. It's a Q&A, and I hope you'll join us for that. Don't forget to check out the free resources at notbyworks.org. Uh, lots of stuff you can buy there. Also, if you see a book or DVD series or streaming series that might interest you, we have a whole streaming series on how we got our Bible uh, which might be of interest given the topic today. But for sure, avail yourselves of the free resources. Lots of great stuff on Bible study resources. Mm-hmm. Any travels coming up for you, J.B.? Are you going to be part of any uh, conferences, or are you mostly going to be we staying We are. Home? Boy, we hit the road this week. We great. leave Thursday. We'll be down in Louisiana speaking four times at a conference in Lake Charles. Great. Then we hit the road a couple weeks later for a four-week trip speaking at four different churches in Orlando, in Claremont, Florida, in Sanford, Florida, in Atlanta, Georgia. So, yeah, check out our events page, and if you're in any of those regions, definitely come by and see us at one of those conferences. Wow, you're a busy guy. And then uh, is it mostly prophecy or, or a mixed bag? What will you be teaching on? All of these coming up are prophecy. Okay. Uh, so I'll be at the Orlando Prophecy Summit with Prophecy Watchers, and then the ones, the solo conferences I'm doing are also uh, focused on prophecy theme. I, I just believe it's the urgency of the hour. Mm-hmm. It's the, it's what people need to, to know about and hear about, and it's it's uh, so it's what's on my heart. Yes, absolutely. And if people aren't getting it in their home church, it's a great opportunity to um, hear what's going on. You know, people say, "Well, you you know, you think and talk too much about prophecy." There's no such thing. These times we are living. Uh, in the pages. We're living between the pages. So, J.B., I just want to thank you so much for uh, adding your wisdom and your Bible knowledge and, and all these things. Uh, and you always give the gospel, which I'm always so grateful for. And we appreciate you. Uh, so I want to thank you for being with me today, and we will see you next time. God bless. Thanks so all much. Right. It was wonderful. All right. Thanks, J.B. All right, he is a busy guy, and I hope that uh, the listener got something out of this. As far as studying the scriptures, because it is so important, to, like the Bible says, to be a workman, uh, rightly dividing the word of truth. Um, if you were to, I, I read something uh, today that said there are about um, close to 1,200 chapters in the scripture. If you took one a day, in three years you will have intensely studied every chapter in the Bible. So that's just one thing. Um, and there are, if you go online, there are Bible study uh, calendars to help you get through the Bible in a year. 
So there are all kinds of ways to divide it up in, in so that it fits your time. Study with your kids, study with your spouse. There are all kinds of ways for the Lord to uh, work in our lives through studying his wonderful word. Wednesday, we have Kitty Fulth-Regner. She is an author from Waukesha, so that's a replay tomorrow. Uh, Thursday, Julaine Appling. We're going to speak to her about uh, goings-on in Wisconsin and, and beyond. Friday, I have some more headlines for you. And Thursday, we have an open house here at Q90FM um, from 2 to 7. So come on down and say hey to everybody. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-eight. Have a wonderful day in the Lord. God bless.